This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information. And we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it's, once again, great to be with you on this Saturday morning for what is now the 38th consecutive program that we are doing that is dealing in some way with the COVID-19 pandemic. In addition to that, we've introduced as topics on the program, looking at the future. What does the healthcare delivery system in the United States look like? And we've had some outstanding guests and we have another one with us this week. My guest will be Dr. John Grady Benson. Dr. Grady Benson is an orthopedic surgeon. He is an orthopedic surgeon at Orthopedic Associates in Hartford, but he is also the physician in chief of the Hartford Healthcare Bone and Joint Institute. So we're going to talk about what's the role of orthopedic care in a future delivery system. What are we looking at? What are the criteria? And he's really been a futurist when looking at that. So he's going to be our guest in the second half of the program. And we're going to take questions in our second segment. And we're going to be talking a lot about the vaccine. I get a lot of questions about the vaccine that was recently approved for emergency use. And we're going to address many of those questions on the program today. Sadly, in this country, there are now 298,000 dead Americans related to COVID-19 and that infection. We have now broken the barrier of 3,000 deaths per day this week. That's a, someone in this country is dying every minute. This is dramatic. And it's so important for us to realize how deadly this virus is. And that's why we need to move forward in a unified fashion, a word we're hearing a lot of, time for unity, in how we approach this deadly enemy. Our rate of positivity here in Connecticut yesterday, uh, it was down a little bit. It was down to 6.9%. It's been as high as 8% this week. That means 6.9 or 7 people out of every 100 are testing positive who go for a test. The numbers overall are increasing. Nationally, we're hearing about shortages of hospital beds. Now, you could buy beds. You could buy equipment. But you can't buy the healthcare workers to go in there and see these people and to take care of patients. And there's only a limited supply of those. And we're tapping out on those. We're bringing in students. We're bringing in people who are retired and have been retired. So we need to be mindful of that. And how do we avoid that problem? Back to basics, right? Wear a mask, wash your hands, social distance. You know, the vaccine is 
the, the home run we've been waiting for. But it's not an instantaneous cure. You have to achieve a certain level of vaccination, of immunity, for it to be effective. So even after you get the injection, that doesn't mean you're Superman or Superwoman. It means that if you get the infection, you will be less harmed by it. So it's important that even after the vaccine becomes starts getting distributed, that we still get back to the basics of wearing a mask, washing our hands, social distancing, and monitoring how the vaccine has helped. And in return, you'll start seeing things open up more in terms of the numbers of people allowed to congregate and social gatherings and back to religious celebrations. So we're going to get there. But it's not going to be this dramatic turnaround. And we'll talk more about that in the next segment. This day in medicine, December 12th, 1889, Dr. George Washington Corner was born. He's an American anatomist. He was an embryologist. And he was the first to identify the hormone progesterone, which we all know because it is what helps regulate a menstrual cycle and ovulation in women, often in combination and in balance with uh, estrogen. But I want to take a, a moment here to mention something else. And uh, I want to thank uh, one of our listeners, uh, Margaret, who made me aware of this because uh, I did not know. And it's about the passing of Dr. James C. Colias. Now, many of us in the medical profession know of him, um, and I think many patients know of him as well. Dr. Colias uh, died on December 4th of this year, and Dr. Colias was a neurosurgeon. He was the chief of neurosurgery at Hartford Hospital. He went to Harvard College. He went to Yale. He operated on people around the world. I mean, he was truly a world-renowned surgeon. And I had the, the pleasure of meeting him on several occasions. But more importantly, he was a great resource for me from the standpoint of being able to refer patients. He had a passion for very difficult spine surgeries and performed these at Hartford HealthCare. And when I was in uh, private practice in Norwich, I often referred many of my cases and patients uh, especially with more difficult uh, needs, uh, to Dr. Colias. So I, I would be remiss on this program, uh, since we are a local community, um, to not recognize the many uh, medical contributions of uh, Dr. Colias, who is a great, great neurosurgeon. From that standpoint, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back, and I'm going to hit the many questions we have been having questions like you know if i had the covid virus do i need to get the vaccine what does the vaccine mean to me why are these anti-vaccine people jumping on this thing so we need to talk about it should you be afraid of this vaccine was it rushed we're going to get to all those in the next few minutes the phone numbers here 860-522-9842 
1-800-966-9842. You can also reach me during the week, as many of you do, at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you. So in this segment of the show, we're going to be talking about the vaccine and what we have termed vaccine hesitancy, um, people who are nervous about the vaccine. And one of the things I hear all the time are, was this vaccine rushed? And the answer is no. Now, it appears that it was because it was developed in nine months, but you have to understand that the research behind this vaccine, this unique messenger RNA vaccine, has been going on for 10 years or more. One way for us to understand it is what they have done is built a chassis. So when you think of the analogy with a vehicle, right, you have a basic chassis. So when you go to buy a car, you find out that, for example, General Motors, they build a, a truck, an SUV called the Tahoe. They build a Cadillac Escalade. They build a GMC Denali. All three of these vehicles are built on the same chassis. They just put a different body on it and different options. Same basic vehicle. And they just move it from place to place. That's the same thing with this vaccine. What it took 10 years to develop was the chassis, the basis of how it's going to work. What they've done in the last nine months is developed the plug-in, the body to put on it, the option, the option to fight COVID-19. So this is not something that was just thought up overnight. So from that standpoint, I believe in the safety of the vaccine. As I've said last week, uh, if it is available to me, I will take it as soon as possible. In fact, I'm being told that I may be among um, those to get it uh, within the next couple of weeks um, since I am involved in delivering health care. Uh, but you have to also understand the groups that are fighting the vaccine, right? So we've all known about the anti-vaccine groups led by Robert Kennedy, um, the attorney, um, and his uh, group uh, where they try to sue everybody uh, and different pharmaceutical firms um, under the false information that vaccines have caused uh, autism. And they've done this in a variety of ways. They use autism as a way of fighting vaccine. Um, they did it originally against the Somali population in New York. Uh, more recently, uh, orth Orthodox Jews, they were told that, you know, getting a vaccine is much like the Holocaust. This is how they're going to wipe you out. And the most recent, in the last few weeks, we've seen them just change their message a little bit and go after the African-American population and saying, you remember Tuskegee? Do you remember when they infected those people with syphilis? And they try to draw that analogy. So it really is 
a focused effort by a large group of people looking to make money and to lead this anti-vax group. So be mindful of that, and we will continue to talk about that. Matter of fact, one of the people involved very closely with this is Dr. Peter Hotez. Many of you will know he's been a guest on our show. Uh, he is local to us from the standpoint that he was born and raised in Hartford and grew up in West Hartford, educated here. He is now one of the foremost international experts on vaccines. He, in fact, is in uh, Texas at Houston, and he is developing a vaccine for COVID-19 that is less expensive and more easily distributed around the world. So I'm hoping we can get him back on the show. So one of the questions uh, is, if I had COVID, should I get the vaccine? And the answer is yes. The reason being that we're unsure of how much immunity you get from having had COVID-19. So what we want to know is that you truly have immunity beyond 90 days. So we've been using a 90-day rule, but for some people it's less, some people it's more. With the vaccine, we have a measured amount of immunity. Now, how long is that? And, and that gets into the question, after I get the vaccine, am I going to need it every year? And we don't think so. And the reason we don't think so is because this virus does not mutate, doesn't change very much. So when you think of the influenza virus, the one we get a vaccine for every year, that's a virus that changes itself like a chameleon, and you need to try and keep up with that. That's not been the case with COVID-19 so far. Now, it doesn't mean you'll never have to be vaccinated again for it, but at least we, we're fairly confident that there'll be several years before needing it again. So again, uh, if you've had COVID, you should still get the vaccine. The other question is, how will I get the vaccine? How do I know when it's my time to get the vaccine? And it's being done differently in different states. Um, here in Connecticut, as we've heard, um, the people who are going to get it first are the first-line workers, the people who are in the healthcare workers in ICUs, uh, emergency departments, uh, first responders, so uh, people who are paramedics, and EMTs will be getting it, uh, firemen, policemen, people who are on the scene. So that will be the first group, along with elderly people who are vulnerable and living in uh, extended care facilities. Uh, as far as after that goes, much of this will depend on your primary care physician. Uh, will that physician's office have it available? How will it be distributed through them? So there are a lot of moving parts to this distribution program. Um, the current plans, the way they were set up, took care of getting the vaccine to the various states. But there's really the next, the next leg of the race if this were a relay race in terms of getting a needle into somebody's arm. And that's what everybody's working on now. Um, so 
we talked a little bit about this. What is the protection from a vaccine? We're seeing a lot of percentages being tossed around. So it's believed that after you get the first shot, if you are getting the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine, it's a two-shot vaccine. It's the prime booster and then a booster shot three weeks later. In those three weeks, it's been said, after you get the first shot, you have about a 52% immunity. With the After the second shot, your immunity shoots up to 95%. So that means 95% of the people who didn't, who got the injection, the second injection, would not get the virus. There's still that 5%. So you're always worried that you could still get the virus even with the vaccine. But what it has been demonstrated in people who have had the vaccine and gotten the virus, their symptoms were mild. And no one died. No one required a respirator in that group. So that tells us that although you have this level of protection, you certainly need to continue wearing a mask and being mindful of the basics that we always talk about. And again, it's it's really important to understand that. That doesn't mean you can start traipsing around without a mask, especially because you continue to be able, we believe, continue to be able to spread the virus. So even though you're not symptomatic, that virus can be living in your nose and in your nasal passages so that you could then spread it to others. Uh, People have asked about the allergy, and I wanted to make sure I get this point in there. Two cases were reported of severe allergy in England. These were people who had severe allergies before that, to the point where they would carry an EpiPen with them. Uh, In this country, we believe that the allergy issue pertains to an allergy to elements that may be in the vaccine. So... If someone is allergic to penicillin, it is doubtful that that would have any interaction with this vaccine. So the we want to be as broad as we can in distributing this. Some people have asked if there are interactions with medications, and they're not known because you're not being given a medication. So it's not something that would interact with medication. It is something that is imparting a protection through your immune system. And other people have been afraid. They say, well, I don't know what it's doing to my genetic structure. Well, I can tell you this. Whatever it's doing to your genetic structure is not as bad as what a virus is going to do to your genetic structure. Because we know that the virus is deadly. So I am encouraging everybody, all listeners, to get the vaccine. And you'll see that because the people who know the most about this in terms of physicians and scientists will be getting the vaccine themselves. So it's important to keep that in mind. There'll be a lot more information coming out, especially when it comes to children and young adults uh, getting Um, the vaccine. But for now, this is the best information we have. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. John Grady Benson,
from uh, the Bone and Joint Institute at Hartford Healthcare. We're going to be talking about orthopedic care in a future healthcare delivery system. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you for the second half of our program. In our uh, goal uh, since uh, the past uh, month or so, uh, we decided that we were going to start spending more time on a discussion of what would be a new health care system. Uh, I think everyone agrees that the current health care system needs to be revised. Um, physicians aren't that happy. Uh, patients aren't happy, um, and the payers aren't happy. Hospitals aren't happy. So it can't be a good system. And, you know, people have thrown away Medicare for all. They've thrown that term out or uh, universal health care, single-payer system. There are a lot of different systems available. But one of the things that is changing rapidly is the actual care and the technology behind it. And one of those fields where there's so much exciting technology that's ongoing is in orthopedics. So I invited our guest today, Dr. John Grady Benson. Um, Dr. John Grady Benson is an orthopedic surgeon at Orthopedic Associates of Hartford, but he is the physician-in-chief at Hartford HealthCare's Bone and Joint Institute and clearly a leader in our community when it comes to orthopedic care. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Dr. Ellis. It's a real privilege to be here, and happy holidays to you and to all your listeners. Uh, thank you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, orthopedics in general. Uh, there has been a tremendous evolution in orthopedics from the standpoint of technology and outcomes, especially in your subspecialty of joint replacement. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this whole subspecialty has evolved and its importance for all of us? Yeah, absolutely. It's an extremely important topic, and thanks for, for raising it up. I mean, I think medicine goes through paradigm shifts in care, and most recently we've been focused on compliance to guidelines for care, uh, to safety uh, metrics, and sometimes that doesn't uh, become real focused and patient-centered. And where I think uh, we should go, uh, and I'm not the only one to believe this, but also all of our colleagues at the Bone and Joint Institute, really are pushing towards a patient-centered care model where quality is defined not just by safety metrics and guidelines, but by patient experience, patient satisfaction, and then possibly most importantly, outcomes that matter most to the patients. So in the joint replacement world, um, I might want to get in my kayak and ride a bike after my joint replacement. Uh, my grandmother might want to just be able to get into her car and, and, and go to the store. Same operation, different expectations, different outcomes. So what outcomes-based orthopedic care is about is trying to collect enough data to understand the risks and the benefits for any particular intervention or procedure and how that relates to personally to the patient who's getting the care. And so the shift then becomes towards getting large data systems where we can really analyze on a personal level 
what the outcomes are based on the patient's uh, expectations and, and how they want to live their life. John, does that change your approach, for example, um, depending on the expected outcome? Uh, when we deal with athletes, for example, there's a much higher expectation in terms of outcome or anybody who earns a living based on their ability to recover. Um, is there a different approach from your standpoint in terms of the speed with which you might replace a joint or operate on somebody, the expectations and the design for rehab? Um, even if we took the two examples you gave of someone who wants to get back to kayaking as opposed to someone who just wants to get back to driving. Yeah, if I could start, uh, Tony, with a 30,000-foot view of your question. It's an excellent question. Um, first, what we need is appropriate data analytics to understand for a, a wide variety of patient expectations and needs what the risks and benefits and outcomes might be for different interventions for that, pe for that person. So, for instance, um, you know, last night I talked to uh, a high-performance athlete who's around 45 to 47 years old who has an arthritic knee from blowing out her knee. How she expects her outcome to be, you know, wanting to get back to an athletic lifestyle and running is very different than what you or I might want. So what we need is appropriate data analytics to really understand how those people do or people like her. So how it changes healthcare is starting out with a series of questions and surveys, which we call patient-reported outcomes. They have some limitations, but they're statistically validated questions that if answered fully, you get an idea of how much pain and disability that particular person has compared to large numbers of, of other patients. And then what we do is track those outcomes after an intervention, whether it's a cortisone shot, whether it's an Advil pill, whether it's a joint replacement, and then collect those surveys again along with all the other data that accompanies that. Did they have an adverse event? Um, did they have more pain than they expected? Did they not get back to walking a mile uh, or getting in the kayak, for instance? And if we collect that data appropriately and understand the cost associated with it, then we can tell each patient who comes into the door, what do you want out of uh, your, your treatment for an arthritic knee, for instance? And you could, you could apply that to any other healthcare problem, right? Um, and then these are how, this is what you'd like. This is how patients like you responded and, and did transparently about those outcomes. And then you start to have really great conversations, right? Then you have shared decision-making conversations where you go into a process of a conversation with the patient and the provider about what treatments are available, how do you want to live your life, what clinical evidence do we have to balance the outcome that you want, and what are the risks associated with it. And so it does take more time. It redirects um, data collecting towards the patient. It, it opens up a conversation but it also opens up transparency about what actually happens to patients. What I mean by that is, you know, I could say, well, I do X number of joint replacements a year and my patients seem to do fine. That's kind of the traditional algorithm, right? The change is about John Grady Benson does X number of joint replacements a year, and this is actually what happened to patients. The people who want to kayak did this. This is how many infections I had. This is how long you stayed in the hospital. Uh, 
this, these are how many patients were actually satisfied with their outcome. And so those are the transparent conversations and the shared decision-making tools that I think are going to really transform uh, healthcare. So, John, let's get to the one question you didn't ask. You asked the question of, okay, what do you expect? Um, how do you want to approach this? You asked a lot of good questions. But you didn't ask the question, what do you want to spend on this? So, yeah. I, I, right, we didn't, we, we, we got to what the patient's expectations are, um, but how much do you as a consumer want to spend on this? And are we getting to that? Is that the question for the insurance company? Because all of these things are associated with the cost, especially in orthopedics. Yeah, fantastic question again, uh, Tony. So I think most folks on the on the uh, show know that the healthcare costs uh, across the country now are about 18% of our gross domestic product, right? This, you know, we, we rank, the United States ranks last amongst wealthy countries in certain quality metrics, infant mortality, heart disease. And, you know, the spend last year is going to reach something like $4 trillion, right? So that, those costs are out of control. We cannot, we cannot continue on the same path and still provide uh, good care. So we have to be um, focused on what the cost of each care is. So embedded in the data analytics that I talked about, developing registries where we really see what happens to patients is also, um, we also have to look at the cost of each of those interventions. And then once we define what the costs are and are really transparent about that, then we can start to, to make focused decisions about how much it's going to cost. So the payers, unfortunately, many of them think that the lowest cost care is, is a proxy for quality. Um, we obviously can't live in that, that world, but we also can't live in the world where an orthopedic surgeon can put in any uh, implant uh, he or she wants um, at, at no matter what the cost. So we have to uh, look at the cost and the outcomes as part of what healthcare value we are, we are administering. So, uh, and, and stop me at any point if, I, if I'm rambling on too long, Tony. Um, for instance, in joint replacement, you asked about technology. We have fantastic robotic-assisted joint replacement now. Um, it's costly. The implants are getting, you know, slowly better. They come at a cost. We have to make sure that those costs are uh, under control. And then we really have to look critically, is a robot-assisted total knee arthroplasty replacement truly better in terms of its outcome for a particular patient? Well, maybe if we collect the data adequately enough and carefully enough, it's better for the 47-year-old who wants to maybe run or be highly active compared to the 80-year-old uh, who, who isn't interested in that. Um, Right now, it, it seems that manual joint replacement may be just as good as robotic-assisted surgery, but the robotic-assisted operations have certain advantages and might be technologically slightly more accurate. Is that slightly more accurate aspect of the, of the technical experience of the surgery going to bring, bring better value over 20 years for the lifetime of the implant or the lifetime of the patient? Hard to know, but we have to ask those questions so that we have a healthcare culture in which we're always asking ourselves, you know, what decision am I making today that is based on data we have that is going to help this patient get better all the time? 
And you know, John, I think you're you're asking. I mean, these are great questions, and obviously, the person who sells the ro- the robot is probably has their own bias in that. Exactly. So we're going to take a short break because the next question I think in this whole scenario is, am I seeing the right person? Is the right person doing this operation? So we need to talk a little bit about education and qualifications to be doing this. My guest today is Dr. John Grady Benson, uh, who is the physician-in-chief at Hartford HealthCare's Bone and Joint Institute, as well as an orthopedic surgeon at Orthopedic Associates of Hartford. We're going to take a short break and be back for the final segment of our program. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest today is Dr. John Grady Benson, um, orthopedic surgeon at Orthopedic Associates of Hartford and physician-in-chief at Hartford HealthCare's Bone and Joint Institute. Uh, John, uh, you know, right before the break, I raised the issue of as a consumer, as a patient, how do I know I'm in the right place and being treated by the right person. That's somebody, you know, you you try to talk to your friends, somebody else who had an operation, your primary care doctor, but how does someone go about doing that? And and in answering that, can you talk a little bit about the Bone and Joint Institute? Because I think a lot of, it's a fairly new concept um, here in Hartford, and I don't know that everyone is familiar uh, with it. So the Bone and Joint Institute is really the the only self-contained musculoskeletal orthopedic uh, care hospital in the state of Connecticut. So we have a very focused program for all musculoskeletal issues from soup to nuts. Um, And to answer your question, what we really look for and concentrate on is making the patient experience an exceptional one. Uh, So we want people to know and to feel that they are cared for. And I have to give a shout out to our BGI staff. They're just an incredible group of, you know, 350 employees who through the whole COVID pandemic have been working overtime, bringing in their best selves. And I, I mean, what gets me up in the morning, I have to say, is just the inspiration I get from this group of people who cares like, you know, no other group I've seen before. And we see this in hospitals across the country, right? I, I just am so proud of these folks who are, you know, stressing themselves, working through the pandemic, and keeping everybody safe. So I have to, to say that's, that's the starting principle, right, is we care about you. We are going to keep you safe. And I'm just so proud of our, our team. And, and I'm proud of my associates at Orthopedic Associates uh, also and, and my team in my office, Kathy and Anna and Michael. I just have to say thanks to them. But as it relates to the patient experience then, First, you need access to care, right? And clearly, if the pandemic has taught us nothing else, it's that there is a huge disparity in access to care across the country. So we have to get better at that. That is a complicated algorithm way beyond, way beyond this show today. Sure. Once you get access, um, what you absolutely want is the best care possible. Now, how do we rely on that? I mean, we rely on that often by asking our neighbor, who did you go see for your knee? Right, exactly. who you to go see for your heart. Um, we have to get the data I was talking about before into the hands of patients, make it transparent, and then allow the patient to have the best access 
to those decisions. I mean, look, you can go on online now and find out exactly how much a Honda Civic costs and who's got the best service and what the details are, right? Can you really go online and look at your doctor and, and the outcomes that that physician or that group of physicians has? Not really. It's still a lot of word of mouth, um, and we need to transform that. So how do we start? At the Bone and Joint Institute, we start by conferences weekly in every service line of musculoskeletal care, looking at exactly how many patients we treat, looking at exactly what happens to them, and it's transparent. It's me and my colleagues, you know, named up on the board, not in a in a an environment of blame and shame and I'm better than you, but an environment of how can we all get better at this? What data do we have today to support the decisions of the care we're delivering now to make the patient experience better and to transform the well-being of that patient and that patient's family? And then how much does it cost? Do we really need to get a blood test after a joint replacement surgery would be one one thing. Do we really need to use this incredibly expensive implant that may not have any value and actually might be worse than, than the ones we use all the time? Um, so those are complicated uh, decisions. But again, it starts with data. It starts and then it's transformed by the caring environment that we provide. And then it's about conversations amongst providers transparently, without blame, without shame, with courage about what actually happens to patients and then listening, listening and listening to what the patient needs, what the patient wants, and making sure there's access to, to that care. Okay, here's a question for you then. Without blame, without shame, but you're dealing in a litigious environment. I mean, um, especially in orthopedics and other specialties. How do we deal with that? Um, you know, the world needs good lawyers. Um, and what medicine hasn't done well with is what I just talked about is saying this physician saying this is what actually happened how can I move on and get better at this and so when adverse events happen we do live in a litigious society but if we're transparent about what actually happened and if we have those discussions I talked about that are patient-centered and caring I think a lot of those issues go away it becomes really difficult when there's a huge cost involved in, you know, paying for um, malpractice insurance, which, you know, state to state is widely variable and in some yep. places really out of control. Um, so I, you know, I don't worry as much about that as I, as I worry about if we do everything right and if, and if, you, um, if you are in an environment where you talk about adverse events openly, I think a lot of the litigious issues are, are not nearly as significant. That, that, John, that thank may, you. That, that may be a little bit of a pie-in-the-sky attitude, but I don't know. Hey, listen, that's what we're looking for here, and that's what listeners and patients need to know. Uh, John, I want to thank you. Thank you for your time. I know how busy you are um, and uh, taking time with us today, and especially uh, thank you and all the folks over at the Bone and Joint Institute uh, for all the good work you guys do. Well, uh, John, really, thanks again. It's a real privilege to be with you, Tony. Thanks so much. And again, happy holidays thanks. to all. Thank you. With that, I want to thank my guest, Dr. John Grady Benson. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Oko, has been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, 
on Healthy Rounds, we are going to be talking about eye care with Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford of the Ratchford Eye Center. And we're going to be talking about how that changes in the future and going forward. As always, you can get questions to me at info at alessimd.com. If you missed any part of today's program, you can download the podcast on iTunes. It's called the Healthy Rounds Podcast. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.